Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. We are in our series today, and, and for those of you who are new, who, who might not um, be familiar with church, I'm, I'm Pastor Abraham. I'm the pastor here at Sun Valley, and uh, Sun Valley is a place where we believe in, in three core values we love, and, and our three core values are growing. This is for, this is, so if you're new here, don't, don't worry, you don't have to repeat, but for everybody else who isn't new here, I expect you to hopefully know this by now. We believe in growing, building, and the hope of, that's like four people, so let's try it one more time. We believe in growing, building, and the hope of, okay, a little better. Uh, someday, down the road, we'll get it, and it'll be great. Um, but for now, we believe in the hope of Jesus. Uh, but we are in our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And this is a series uh, that, that, I, that I love that we're going through. And, and this is uh, kind of uh, an exploration of the major and minor stories of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And, and what we find through these stories, both individually and, and, and as a whole, is how, how radically and how often controversial the, this all-inclusive love of God is. Uh, we started our series uh, a, a while ago, actually. We started it back in September of 2018. Um, we started with Genesis, and we've been going kind of slowly through these books. Uh, and today, now, we are in our last sermon on the, on the series of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so for those of you who maybe want to read along with us, uh, every Monday on our Facebook page and on our website as well, uh, we post a reading. So if you want to follow along with the reading, maybe you want to get ahead of the reading and want to find out what we're talking about on Saturday, uh, you can go to our Facebook page and go to our website. We have our recommended reading there. We also have some questions uh, to kind of help you uh, understand the reading better and to hopefully stimulate some discussion uh, with you and, and your spouse, your partners, your friends, your neighbors, your community. Uh, if you want to start a small group, uh, this, this would be a good opportunity to do that. But we are today in our last sermon on the series of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and these books uh, span a few decades, actually. And, and there, are, there are three different waves of Israelites that, that return. So for those of you who might not be familiar with the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are two books in the Bible, but originally uh, they are one, one book together. And they span this period of time uh, from when the Israelites were in exile, they were captured by, by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were dominated by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were then dominated by the Middle Persians, and so they are in a foreign land at the moment, and they are then kind of slowly beginning to travel back uh, to Jerusalem, back to Judah. And so uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah kind of covers that span, this period of when these exiles are beginning to return back home. And so the first wave uh, that we saw was led by this man named Zerubbabel, and he completed the work of establishing the foundation of the temple and rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem for worship. And then the second wave was led by this man named Ezra. And so Ezra was sent specifically by the king to teach the people of the first exile the law of Moses and the law of God. And then this third wave uh, was led by Nehemiah, who, who, whom the second book is named after. And Nehemiah completes the work of rebuilding 
uh, the temple, or not the temple walls, the, the city walls of Jerusalem. So they be, begin to rebuild all the gates and the city walls of Jerusalem. And so last week when we read our story in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6, uh, we learned some valuable lessons through Nehemiah. We learned to, to turn pain into prayer and action. We learned that when we become followers of Jesus, everything we do is enveloped in the sacred. Everything that we do is, 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 is touched or is influenced by the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And we learned uh, to let God handle our reward and, and, and our enemies, that God often far exceeds our expectations and God will frustrate our enemies by, by fulfilling the work that he has called us to do. So this week we are taking a look at the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole. Uh, today we're not going to be in just one particular part of the story. We're going to be looking at what the book does as, as, as a theme or, or what the whole theme of the book in each story tells us. So we're going to be jumping around in a few different places in the Bible. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you're welcome to. If uh, maybe we're moving too fast, you're welcome to follow us on the screen. We'll have our Bible verses up there in the New International Version. So Ezra chapter 4, this is where we're starting today. Ezra chapter 4 says this, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So um, then, then Zerubbabel but Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered in verse 3, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of of Persia. So here we read that there, there's a people group that, that are currently living in Jerusalem that have then wanted to assist in the rebuilding of the temple. They, they say that they're, that they're worshiping this God. They want to worship this God that the Israelites are, are, are worshiping. In fact, they said, listen, we've been worshiping since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, the one who sent us here. Let us be a part of this rebuilding. But unfortunately, Zerubbabel rejects them and says, no, you don't have anything to do with this building. And the reason that he rejected them is because because they weren't fully full-blooded Jews. They weren't 100% Jewish. These people were actually a mix of Jewish and Assyrian uh, ancestry, which the Assyrian king had brought in. So when Assyria had conquered Judah, when it had conquered uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, it brought in Assyrians to intermingle and to mix with the people that were left behind to hopefully dilute the bloodline and to kind of uh, ideally make them more manageable. That was the hope of the king. And so these people were a mix of Assyrian and Jewish descent, and they had some different practices, but over all in all, they kind of worship Yahweh. And, and this is the line that actually uh, descends down to Samaria. So this is where we get some of the Samaritans from, which you might know about from the time of Jesus, right? So unfortunately, um, they say, no, you have nothing to do with us because you're different from us. And then Nehemiah does something similar uh, in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verse 19 of the book of Nehemiah says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Jasham the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us, heard about the rebuilding. They said, What is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. 
Uh, you'll notice that in, in, in Ezra 4, it said the enemies of Judah came and, and said, let us help you rebuild, right? We have to remember that the book is written in retrospect. So we don't know if these people were enemies already, and if they were just trying to trick the Israelites, or if they were made into enemies because they were rejected from building uh, the walls, right? But Nehemiah, unfortunately, continues this cycle of hurts and, and, and rejects them and says, no, you also have nothing uh, to do with us. And, and this might not seem that big of an issue if we focus on, on how this people group had treated the Israelites, right? Over the years, they'd been terrible to the people of Judah. They'd been terrible to all these exiles that were returning. They were bribing officials. They were trying to frustrate the work. They were spreading lies and false rumors and doing all this other stuff. And so if we focus on that, then, then yes, it, it, we understand why Nehemiah would not want anything to do with this people. But, but unfortunately, this, this exclusion of the different people becomes an issue when we look at the context of some of the writings of the prophets during this period of the exile, even before the exile happened. And so Jeremiah and Isaiah write in a, uh, about a time when Israel would finally be restored. Right? Jeremiah and, and, and Isaiah say that one day God will bring us out of exile. One day God will return us back to Jerusalem. One day God will restore the temple, restore the city. And so this is the hope that they cling on to. And this is Jeremiah chapter 3. And we're going to be jumping a, a couple of verses here. So Jeremiah 3 verse 17 says this, At that time, so whenever they're talking about that time or the last days or the Lord's day, they're talking about this time when God would establish his kingdom again through the Messiah. So he says this, at that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all nations, careful, listen to this, all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel and together they will come from a northern land uh, to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance, right? All nations would gather to Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 2. Verse 2, it says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a, a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the feast of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the darkness, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all of the earth for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 56 says this, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without, without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those I have already gathered. These are just a few verses. I mean, we could spend hours 
picking through Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jeremiah and some of the other prophets, finding verses like this. But this, this idea that these prophets are, are alluding to, that are pointing to, is that, that God would eventually restore Jerusalem, that God would restore this temple, God would restore his holy mountain. And if you notice, there's a couple of times in, in, throughout the books it says, all nations, all people, all faces, everyone, no matter who they were, people that weren't even part of Judah, people that weren't even part of Israel, would come to this place and gather together seeking the Lord, and then Jerusalem and this holy mountain would be a beacon of light to everyone around. God's intention with the rebuilding of Jerusalem, God's intention with the rebuilding of the temple was that it would be a beacon, a place of refuge for all nations. But unfortunately, and we'll read this through the story, we read this, unfortunately, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they had other plans. They, they let their own prejudices, they let their own opinions get in the way of the plans that God had for all of his people, not just Israel, but for all of his people. And so here's our first lesson today. Our first lesson that we learn from the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah is this, don't veto God. Don't veto God. God. We've talked about this idea before. We've, when we explored the book of Kings, we talked about how, how we, we have this uh, um, tendency to craft God in our own image. Right? We have this tendency to mold Jesus in our image. And I don't think, I don't think any of us believes in a God or, or believes in a Jesus who disagrees with our own personal views and values, right? Does anybody believe in a Jesus that's like, oh, the way you're living and your opinions and your values are completely wrong, and you're just living your life like that. I think most of us would agree that, like, yeah, like, the way that I see the world is the way that God probably sees the world, too. What I accept is what God accepts. What I reject is what God rejects, right? We have this tendency to kind of mold God into our own image, to believe that God has the same exact values as us, which is ironic because the same Christians that, that have values that lie on one end of the spectrum believe in the same God as the Christians who have values that lie on the other end of the spectrum, Right? It's ironic how we can be on one end of the spectrum, right or left, doesn't matter what you want to call it, and then you, have, you believe in the same God who believes in the same values as the people whose values contradict. Right? No matter what end of the spectrum, we believe in the same God, believe that God believes our own ideas, and we tend to interpret the Bible, and we intend to interpret Jesus and, and justify our own beliefs and our own system, regardless of what end of the spectrum we live on, whether we're liberals or conservatives, traditional or contemporary, whatever you want to call it, our version of Jesus tends to agree with us. The problem is when our version of Jesus is justified over what the Bible teaches us as a whole, Right? If our version of Jesus contradicts what God is speaking to us through his word, then maybe we're worshiping the wrong Jesus. Because just as important as what the Bible says individually in these individual verses, it's also important to note that the Bible has these themes and these ideas that overarc the entire story, that overarc entire books, that overarc entire chapters. The Bible is not meant to be an instruction manual. And it's meant to be a wisdom literature, so we're supposed to see these patterns arise over and over again and note that they are incredibly important and should influence the way that we view God and relate to Him. And so, while there are portions of the Bible that talk about protecting the community 
and protecting them specifically from foreigners and outsiders who might influence uh, us negatively, who might lead us astray. The Bible talks about that. Don't, don't more, uh, marry foreign women. Don't marry foreign men because these men might lead you into idolatry. Yes, the Bible talks about that sometimes individually, but you have to realize that as a whole, the Bible talks about this idea that God's people would welcome and include and accept people from all nations, regardless of where they're from. Right? And so the question that we might ask then is how might Israel, Israel's history have changed if they had been faithful to this prophetic vision that God had given to Isaiah and Jeremiah? How might things have changed? How might the world have changed if they had been faithful to God's vision? It's impossible to tell. But what we learn from this is that we shouldn't veto God. Our opinions, listen to this, our opinions and our viewpoints don't get to supersede God's instructions for our lives. Did you guys hear that? Our opinions and our viewpoints do not get to supersede God's instructions for our lives. When we veto God's plans, we delay the blessing that he has in store for us and for the people around us. Remember when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I promise that you will be blessed. But more specifically and just as importantly, God says you will be blessed so that you might be a blessing to all nations, to all people. See, God's plans for us, God's plans for earth is to bring his kingdom here, to bring his love and his peace and his grace and his mercy here on earth. But when our views, when our opinions, when our prejudices veto God, we delay God's kingdom on earth. Don't veto God. You know, one of the subtle issues that occurs in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra is, is that of identity. And this is kind of where we find this issue with, with, with our first lesson, right? Where these people are excluding these people that are different because they are struggling with their identity. These exiles have been living in this foreign land. They've been living under foreign rulership for centuries. And it's been far too long since Israel has been under or has been united under this sovereign nationhood. A long time ago, they split into the northern and the southern kingdoms, and they haven't been united since. And even then, now in exile, it's been centuries since they've been ruled under Israelite rulership, since they've had this united front. Part of who they were was lost as the influences of their captors, of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians began to infiltrate their culture and their identity. So as these Israelites returned back to Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem is the center of nationalistic hope, as they returned back to this, part of their concern as Israelites, as people, is how do we maintain and preserve and foster our Israelite identity? How do we remain faithful to the uniqueness that God has called us that's one of the questions they struggle with. And so we take this, or we see this happen again and again in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but unfortunately, it happens not in the way that God intended it to happen. We see that Zerubbabel creates these enemies of people that are already living in Jerusalem by denying them the opportunity to worship Yahweh, to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple, because their worship to Yahweh was a little different than theirs. 
And if their worship was different, they could have just taught them God's ways. They could have spent the time to instruct them, well, actually, this is the right way to worship, but instead they rejected the people because of their difference. We see Ezra do the same thing. We talked about this a couple sermons ago, where Ezra splits up these families. He says, listen, you guys have been unfaithful. You've married people of different uh, ethnicities. You've married people of different backgrounds, so you have to divorce. Send your wives away. Send your husbands away. Send your children away. He forces these people to divorce and send them away despite despite the fact that the hope of the Messiah, that the hope of Jesus included in its lineage a Canaanite prostitute and a Moabitess. Despite the fact that the prophet Malachi had given them specific instruction, don't divorce your wives because that's not what God wants you to do. God would rather have you lead people to him than just throw them away because because they view things differently than you. And we see Nehemiah do the same thing. He repeats and continues the cycle of her by denying the people around them to be a part of the work that God is doing in Jerusalem. And I I don't think that they did this intentionally. I don't think this evil was done intentionally. Their actions are unfortunately this product of this incomplete view of what God wanted for his people. But the way they viewed protecting their identity, the way they viewed uh, uh, maintaining and promoting their identity was through excluding those that differed from them. This is our second lesson today. Our second lesson is this. Exclusivity is not our identity. Do you guys see that? Exclusivity is not our identity. You see, the world is is changing all around us. Values and opinions are changing all around us. And one of the questions that sometimes we might face as a Christian community is that, is how do we remain faithful to God? How do we maintain this identity that Jesus is calling us to? How can we be faithful and different from the world that is changing around us? How do we be faithful to this gospel commission that Jesus calls every single person to be a part of? How can we be consistent with the biblical values and the love and the mercy that God is calling us to? And these are hard questions to manage sometimes. But if the Bible has taught me anything, it has taught me this, that exclusivity is not our identity. Our identity is not defined and preserved by the people we exclude from our community. Did you hear that? Our identity is not defined and preserved by the people that we exclude from our community. Our identity is not preserved by refusing to welcome people who differ from us. Our identity is not preserved by selectively allowing only the people who never challenge us or who never disagree with us. Our identity is not preserved by ostracizing the people from our community who are questioning, who have doubts, who are making mistakes. That's not how we preserve our identity. You see, Jerusalem was this place that God had created for his name to dwell. God had created this place, and he says in the Bible numerous times, this is the city in which I have caused my name to dwell. And God's goal for rebuilding Jerusalem, God's goal for rebuilding the temple, was that all nations, regardless of who they were, regardless of their ethnic backgrounds, regardless of their differences, regardless of their views, all people would find refuge and comfort within the place where God had caused his name to dwell. And if you want to know what God's name is, Go to Exodus chapter 34. God says this, this is my name. When he, when he goes before Moses, he says, he repeats his name. He says, I am the God, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. I am the one slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, the one who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the name of God. God had called them 
the people of Israel to rebuild these gates of Jerusalem so that people might come in, but instead they chose to focus on rebuilding the walls to keep people out. The church now is the place where God causes his name to dwell. The church as a whole, the church as a community, this is the place where God chooses to provide hope. This is the place where God chooses that we might welcome people into his kingdom. The church is the place that is meant to be the beacon of light unto all the world, the place by which, by which all nations should be blessed. And so the church needs to be a place where people of all walks of life are welcomed into the presence of God. But let me say this. It's not enough to be passively welcoming. It's not enough to be passively welcoming. We can't just be content with being a place where people can come to find refuge. We need to be a place where people are brought to find refuge. Do you guys see the difference? Right? We can't just be a place where people come to find refuge. We have to be a place where people are brought to find refuge. The difference is active and passive. God has not created us to be a stationary dead body. God has created us to be active, to go out into the world, to go out into the community around us, to usher in the broken, the lost, the hopeless, the orphaned, the widow, all of those who are in need of the same grace and mercy and forgiveness that we have found in Jesus. Exclusivity is not our identity. Our identity is not preserved by keeping people out. Our identity is preserved by welcoming people in. And we reach the end of the book of Nehemiah. This is chapter 13. And we find that after some time away, Nehemiah returns to find that, that some of the priests have allowed this man named Tobiah to live inside one of the storehouses of the temple, something that they, that they shouldn't have done, something that was prohibited. But that's not all. Nehemiah returns from Babylon. He had to take a period away from, from, from Judah, go back to Babylon and serve there. But he returns after the law has been read, after these people have already understood the, the law of Moses, the law of God, and he returns unfortunately, to find that things are going terribly wrong. This is Nehemiah chapter 13. It should be available there for you. Uh, verse 10, it says this, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is this house, the house of God, neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Verse 15, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Moreover, verse 23, in those days I saw men of Judah who had again married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. So verse 30, I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. Nehemiah's a pretty zealous guy. But Nehemiah comes back and he's frustrated, right? 
He's frustrated because there's lots of stuff going wrong. He's frustrated that people are buying and selling on the Sabbath. He's frustrated that they've desecrated the temple, that the priests and the Levites have failed to fulfill their duties as, as ministering to the people, but have instead returned to go work in the fields. He's frustrated that people have again gone back to marrying these foreign women and failing to teach their children about Yahweh. And we might come to expect this of people living in Babylon. We might come to expect this of people living somewhere in exile, but not the people, not now, I mean, God had done so many amazing things for these people just in the last few decades. He had made a way for them to return from slavery. He had made a way for them to return from exile back to Babylon. Foreign kings who do not acknowledge the God, who do not primarily worship Yahweh, had somehow made it so that they could build their projects out of the royal treasury. Despite all the enemies around them, Judah prospered. Despite the opposition, the temple was rebuilt. Despite all the enemies trying to set up roadblocks and bribe officials, the walls were rebuilt. The law of God and Moses was read before the people in the whole assembly. On the outside, everything was theoretically done right. The whole, the whole of the circumstances were perfect. They were in the right environment. They were with the right people. They were under the right circumstances. So if everything was right on the outside, why were the people still making mistakes? Why were the people still sinning? You see, the hope, the hope of Zerubbabel, the hope of Ezra, the hope of Nehemiah was that if they could restore the temple if they could restore the system of sacrifice and worship, if they could restore the city, if they could teach people the law of God and Moses again, then finally they would be faithful to God. But they find this, that restoring the outside didn't work. And we'll learn why this is our final lesson today. Our final lesson is this. God wants your heart. God isn't interested with the formalities of worship. God isn't interested in our religious systems. God isn't interested in how well-versed we are in the law. God isn't concerned with the things of the outside. God is interested in your heart. The people restored the temple. They restored the walls. They restored the systems, but they were still doing the same detestable things. They still fell into the same patterns of sin and disobedience as they had before, even though all these systems had been restored and rebuilt. And it's because although they had fixed the outside... Although things seemed okay on the outside, they failed to change their hearts. They failed to give their hearts back to God. They failed to realize that real change comes not from going through the motions of worship and spiritual systems, but real change comes from surrendering our heart to God. Renewing worship, renewing systems, renewing buildings, while all that stuff is great, they aren't the things that bring us back to God. I want to invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. You know, you can, you can change, you can, you can spruce up the outside all that you want, but if you haven't given your heart to God, it's all for nothing. You can do whatever your version of perfection is. You can drive your electric cars and <laughs> separate your organics and your recyclables. You can be 100% vegan and cruelty-free. You can have the Bible memorized forward and backward. You can volunteer all of your free time, donate all of the money that you want. You can do whatever your version of perfection looks like. But if you haven't given your heart to God, yet it's all pointless. And this, this surrendering of the heart has to be this daily, hourly, minute-by-minute minute kind of thing because we are all prone to repeating the same mistakes. We are prone to taking back our heart from God. We are prone to failing to see real change. 
But if we want to see change in our lives, we have to give our heart to God constantly. See, what God wants more than perfection, what God wants more than anything else in the world, what God wants more than whatever sacrifices you could bring before him, God wants your heart. In whatever condition or state that it's in, God wants your heart. God wants to bring healing and restoration into your life. He wants to give you hope. He wants to do the same for the whole world around you. So don't veto God. Don't let your preconceived notions or your ideas or opinions or your prejudices get in the way of the redemptive work of forgiveness and restoration that God has called us to be a part of. God wants you and God wants us to be a beacon by which others come to see Jesus. He wants us to be a blessing that blesses all other nations. And as we struggle with defining our identity in this ever-changing world, as we struggle to remain faithful to the way that Jesus has called us to live in the world, that in a, in a world that seems to reject God more and more every day, just remember this, that exclusivity is not our identity. Our Christianity is better defined by those we let in than those we keep out. The church is the place where God has chosen his name to dwell. It's the body that he's chosen to demonstrate his love and compassion and forgiveness. And this means that it's not just our responsibility to be a place of shelter around us, but it's our responsibility to draw people in so that they might find rest and restoration and Jesus, our community welcomes those who are different from us. But let us never forget that building up buildings, building up systems, building up worship doesn't create lasting change. What God wants is your heart. He doesn't just want you to go through the motions. He doesn't just need you to be even remotely close to perfect. God wants what's on the inside over what's on the outside. And I want you to know this because I want you to leave with this idea. Because I know what it's like to, to feel like you're giving your heart over and over to God, but you're just still constantly making these mistakes and, and you're feeling terrible and you're feeling miserable that no matter how many times you give your heart to God, you're just still messing up and you might feel worthless after this. But I want you to know this. I want you that you can keep giving your heart to God every single day, knowing that God focuses more on forgiving you than on the mistakes that you've made. Don't let the shame of your mistakes keep you from running to God. Don't let shame of your mistakes keep you from surrendering your heart because God is far less concerned with where you've been and what you've done than he is concerned with the power of his mercy and forgiveness. The mercy and forgiveness that can change your life, that can restore your heart. See, God doesn't need you to be perfect. Far from it. God doesn't need you to be mistake-free. God just wants your heart. Whatever condition or state it's in, God wants your heart.